Welcome to Pull Quotes, a weekly podcast from the Ryerson Review of Journalism. I'm Michal Stein. And I'm Lydia Abraha. This week, we've got a very special episode planned. On Tuesday, November 20th, the ROJ hosted ROJ Unpublished, our first public event of the year. The theme of the event was, Is Journalism Failing Women? The last few years have seen tremendous upheaval in terms of what we call women's issues. In the United States, the election of Donald Trump prompted the birth of the Women's March. Sexual assault allegations against Harvey Weinstein last October brought activist Tarana Burke's Me Too movement to the mainstream. After a surge of women candidates running and winning in the U.S. midterms, people are starting to ask the question, is 2018 the year of the woman? But troubling stories are coming to light all the time. Just last week, the CBC reported that in Saskatchewan, at least 60 Indigenous women are pursuing a class action lawsuit alleging that they were forced to be sterilized after giving birth, even as recently as 2017. Reproductive justice and poverty are also women's issues, but they should be everybody's problem. So how do we deal with that tension in the media? We brought in six speakers to address these questions and more. Carly Fortune, Sheila Sampath, Maureen Halushek, Eternity Martis, Leanne George, and Emma Jones all joined us in the new Catalyst space at Ryerson. After this, our very own producer, Michal, moderated a panel discussion. Today on Pull Quotes, is journalism failing women? Carly Fortune is the executive editor of Refinery29 Canada. She's also a Ryerson grad and worked on the ROJ in 2006. I was also editor-in-chief of Chatelaine for almost three months, which I believe gives me the record for being the shortest serving editor-in-chief in the magazine's 90-year history. I actually worked there for almost four years, mostly as the deputy editor under Leanne George. Carly talked about why she loves working in women's media. It means she gets to talk about women's issues. Actually, I really hate that term. It makes me think of poor Auntie Bev dealing with her women's issues. <laughs> what the heck are women's issues anyway? Cramps, periods, super periods? In all seriousness, the topics we usually put in that bucket, such as reproductive health, equality, childcare, are plain old issues. Here's just a snippet of what Carly had to say. Tonight's event is titled, Is Journalism Failing Women? I don't love that question. Is journalism failing women? Failing women at what? And which women is it failing? It's hard to imagine an event titled, Is Journalism Failing Men? Is journalism failing women? The question implies that all women share some kind of goal that journalism should help them achieve, and I don't think that's true. It also implies that women are a cohesive unit with an agreed upon set of values, opinions, and objectives, and that is definitely not true. A quick example. The other day I was talking to a woman who works at Revlon. She said the most divisive topic in her office is whether you apply lipstick to your bottom lip first or your top lip first. I was shocked. Who the hell applies lipstick to their bottom lip first? <laughs> I could not imagine. I am a firm top lipper. The idea of somebody doing it differently was shocking. Bottom lip first, who are you people? But I really do find moments like this clarifying. It's a small reminder. Women are not on the same page about anything. Women are not a cohesive unit. At times, it may have looked that way. 
In January of 2017, for example, five million people all over the world took part in the Women's March. And it might have looked that way again in October of that year when millions of people shared the Me Too hashtag within just 24 hours of it first going viral. To be sure, conversations surrounding women's rights and equality, as well as sexual assault and harassment, have been pushed to the forefront. But not all women feel included in the conversation. Women of color, women who don't live in big cities, women, women who have minimum wage jobs, devoutly religious women, may not see themselves reflected in the stories being told, in the issues being brought to the fore. Not all women are comfortable with the effects of the Me Too movement, and of course, not all women call themselves feminists. Those of us who work in women's media are often super comfortable calling ourselves feminists. We're progressives. We live in urban areas. We want readers to think just like us, to be on the same page as us. We want women to be over here with us. But women are all over the place. What role, then, should women's media play in covering women's issues when we don't agree on what the issues are? How can it play a role in furthering women's rights without alienating a wide audience? I believe the answer is about finding common ground. Because even though the discourse is more polarized than ever, there is so much we have in common. Finding that common ground is what Carly hopes to do at Refinery29 Canada. Next up is Sheila Sampath. Sheila is the editorial and art director of Shameless Magazine. So Shameless is a feminist magazine for teen girls and trans youth rooted in principles of social justice and anti-oppression. And while I didn't go to Ryerson, um, the magazine actually started here as a class assignment. So I think the assignment was for students to envision a magazine that they thought should exist but didn't. And co-founders Melinda and Nicole imagined Shameless. So I want to just say that Shameless isn't women's media. Um, we're feminist media. And I think it's actually really important to draw a distinction between the two and to define exactly what we mean when we invoke broad political uh, constructs and ideologies like feminism. So the reality is that most of our readership and most of our staff have been exposed to women's media all our, all our lives. It's what mainstream magazine, teen magazines are. Those magazines never empowered our queer, non-binary bodies, our racialized, disabled, fat, migrant, non-status survivor bodies. Those magazines are women's magazines, not feminist magazines, and those magazines are the reason why Shameless exists. So, but even within the feminist media landscape, those, uh, those of us women and trans people facing multiple intersections get left behind. So feminism is a word that's used to describe everything, everything from lean in and I'm with her, um, to really problematic things like trans-exclusionary radical feminism, to also problematic sex worker exclusionary radical feminism, to the type of feminism that we choose to practice, one that's rooted in intersectionality and in a shared vision for a decolonial and anti-capitalist future. Sheila mentioned that because Shameless is completely volunteer run and doesn't rely on advertisers, it can better cater to the community it serves. For us, talking to and about women is an entry point to talking about gender identity, to talking about race, queerness, disability, and the longer lasting impacts of white supremacy, colonialism, border imperialism, and capitalism. Because of our status as a publication, we can do that in ways that are honest and that shape, define, and push our concepts of feminism further. 
So for example, why are, why are mainstream women's publications largely silent on Black Lives Matter? Is that not a feminist movement? When we talk about Me Too, where's the discussion about the ways in which carceral feminism further hurt communities of color? Where's the recognition that today, we're, today is the trans day of remembrance, for example? So when I read articles in women's magazines about Brett Kavanaugh and fears around Roe Ro versus Wade, I still didn't read anything about reproductive justice and the ways in which indigenous women are still sterilized after giving birth in hospitals in Canada. I cannot honestly say that journalism is failing women, but it is failing BIPOC women, it's failing trans women, it's failing disabled, poor, work, disabled women, working class and poor women, and it's failing those of us left on the margins. The goal of Shameless, Sheila says, is to fill those gaps left by women's media and other feminist media. Maureen Halushak is the editor-in-chief of Flare, and she wanted to talk about moving politics off the page. Most women's media brands have a history of being political, even going back to the early 1900s. But what is really new and crucial for women's media right now, in my opinion, is that in 2019 with the federal election, there will be the largest ever voting, the largest voting block will be millennials. There will be 9.5 million millennials voting in next year's election. And that is a huge um, amount of people. And those are people that we want to speak to at Flair to encourage to become more political in their real lives. And yes, women's brands like Flair are often considered, uh, often considered lifestyle brands. But to that, I would say, aren't politics the ultimate lifestyle choice? Because as we're seeing right now in America, and as we're seeing even here in Canada as of June 29th, what's going on politically can have a very real impact on what's going on in your life. And if there's one thing I've learned at Flair in the past two years since we've been digital only, it's the fact that our readers are A, um, interested in myriad things and not to be underestimated, and B, they're also really, really pissed off about a lot of different things. And those things have a real political element. It could be something as minor as The Bachelorette ending up choosing a contestant who had a lot of likes. Instagram likes had liked a lot of alt-right memes on Instagram that really pissed people off. It can be the comments made last week or the week before by the Victoria's Secret uh, marketing VP, talk the really transphobic comments that he made. And it can also be the never-ending barrage of cuts that Doug Ford is making that really have a huge impact on marginalized people in Ontario. So our readers are pissed off about this stuff, and at Flair, we're really pissed off about it as well. And we want to produce content and also produce events that really will help people get to the next level. Not just reading and liking posts about political events, but just getting out there and making a difference in their communities. But at the end of the day, our political content is not bringing in nearly as many page views or unique views as our celebrity content. Content like our very well-known Bachelor vertical, flare.com slash the morning after, and content like our regular um, monthly Netflix listings. So that type of content helps us hit our targets, hit our traffic targets, hit our revenue targets, and it also frees us up to uh, pursue topics that may not be generating as much traffic and may not be generating as much uh, revenue. So in a way, as the slide would indicate, we have Chris Harrison to thank for some of the freedom that we have to pursue some political topics that may not be the number one traffic generators for flare.com. 
And as our next step at Flare, which is the theme of this presentation, um, how I do really think if we want to be authentic about having politics as part of our brand DNA, we need to be doing it for the right reasons, as Chris Harrison himself would say. And those right reasons for me are not page views, they're not Facebook impressions, they're in real life um, action. And Flair is trying to make that happen by launching their first ever political event, which they did on Thursday, November 21st. Eternity Martis is a senior editor at Extra, an LGBTQ outlet. She talked about hard truths about being a woman of color in journalism, but it's handled, Eternity says, quoting Olivia Pope from Scandal. Many of you probably know the term, the struggle is real. The struggle is very real. Um, and Working in journalism is really hard for women of color, but especially black women. Um, they face different, a different set of issues, of systemic issues in this country. So I am talking about women of color, but I'm also talking about black women as well. So uh, story time. So I am a, a black woman. I am a full-time uh, editor. I have a salary. I have benefits. Um, and I work for an alternative publication. And these are things that I did not think would happen for me. Um, and after graduating in 2016, I couldn't find a job in mainstream media, and my options were either a fellowship, an internship, uh, or freelancing. So I didn't want to go back to being an intern uh, after doing an MJ. I felt like you know I deserved a little bit better than that, as we all do. And so I went to freelancing. So I pitched, I refined my skills, I networked, um, and I faced a roadblock that a lot of people don't necessarily face, which is one, I was a woman of color, but two, I was also writing about race and about uh, issues related to women. And um, I was often told that I'd be blacklisted or I would be pigeonholed or I wouldn't get a job. And that the things that I was saying even two years ago was too much for people to understand and it was too soon. Uh, and so I stuck with it. I continued on my beat. Um, and so the things I wrote about were race, uh, race, gender, sex, re reproduction, dating. Um, I continue to do that. I continue to pitch to mainstream magazines um, and mainstream publications. Didn't even get as much of a, as a rejection letter. It's the thing where if you are a person of color in this industry and you want to write about race, um, it's somehow a political issue. And yet, um, you know, there are a ton of right-wing columnists writing about that and it's not considered a political issue. Eternity spoke about the expectations put upon journalism students, that they'll go work at legacy media companies, that they'll write news stories, but that doesn't account for the different kinds of students who come into J school. You're kind of taught it's what you, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And considering this industry is still very white and male, um, who you know is not really an option for many of us, which leads me to my next slide which is other mothering. Other mothering has a ton of different um, definitions, but the most important one is that it encompasses women striving to uplift their communities through social activism, et cetera, et cetera. And I feel like in this industry as a whole for everyone, everyone does a lot of other mothering. And I think this is especially true for women of color. It's very much, it works in the same way as a whisper network. Uh, it's looking out for other women of color. It's uplifting them, whether it's just checking in to see how they're doing. It can be offering to edit their work or help them with queries. It could be setting them up with uh, a contact or creating Facebook pages and Twitter pages that are private. And it's just being there to support one another because you know the struggle is real. And especially for, uh, for black women, not only is this work precarious, um, but it rarely considers black women or women of color for full-time positions. 
Uh, and so what I do to other mother is I go beyond my own job. Um, you know, I take people out for coffee, we'll chat. Even if somebody doesn't have a pitch, I will still like work it out with them uh, and spend a lot of time just trying to get other voices heard. And so it really does feel like other mothering is a job that never really ends uh, when you're a woman in this industry. An eternity ends with some important tips for going forward. Know you're valuable, write what you want, ask for help when you need it, take some time for self-care, meet like-minded people, do what feels right, and to paraphrase, take no garbage. Leanne George was the editor-in-chief of Chatelaine, but she's in the process of launching a consultancy firm, George & Co., that will focus on how brands market to women. She talked about money, a topic Leanne says she used to love to avoid. She said you can't talk about women's media without talking about business. When it comes to women's media, the whole delicate balance is thrown to hell. Because historically, no one has even in theory been trying to make sure that women have what they need to function in a democracy. The point of mainstream women's media has always been advertising. And more specifically, to teach women how to be as successful at a very narrowly defined vision of womanhood middle class, white, thin, etc., and then sell them things to help them inch closer to this ideal. I'm not talking about the many excellent independent pub women's publications and publications in this realm that have existed on the margins, often powered by volunteers, donors, and foundations. I'm talking about the mainstream stuff, the really big business. And I don't say this to diminish lifestyle journalism, which I enjoy very, very much. Um, or the very real value of women's magazines historically as a portal to the world and as a connector of women. But the reason this is important to point out now is that the substance of women's publications has always been dictated by the business model. The fact that women's media has existed purely to sell advertising is a distinction that has shaped women's discourse so profoundly for so long, I don't think I even realized it until social media reached a critical mass in the last five years, and women started talking to each other directly. Everything has changed. Leanne explained that social media has opened up spaces for long-suppressed voices, like women of color and members of the LGBTQ community, Indigenous women, and those lobbying for body positivity. This pushed the women's media industry forward to include those voices too. This transformation dovetailed with another business trend, and that is the accelerated secular decline of print advertising across the entire industry. The industry has since set its sights on digital. And of course, many successful digital-only publications have emerged in this space. But the reality is the shift to digital has done very little to offset the loss of print revenues for women's media brands. The expression is trading print dollars for digital dimes. And so a new business model has taken hold in women's media, and that is the model of scale, attracting as many eyeballs as possible to maximize ad exposure. It has become a necessity. And in women's media in particular, this shift has re replaced the old business strictures with new ones. Scale places new business pressures on editors. It demands an extremely high volume of content that will resonate with as many people as possible. It's a model that's often directly at odds with an editor's desire to produce high quality journalism, which is expensive, nuanced, time consuming, and frankly, not always popular. With shrinking editorial budgets and teams, 
producing in-depth journalism starts to look like a terrible business investment. Scale calls for uh, a lot of lifestyle and celebrity content and expensive, shareable opinion. And opinion is essential to the mix, and personal storytelling is essential, and I think that is one of the best things that has come out of the social media, um, the, the rise of social media. But I don't think any of it can replace reporting. And the danger is one of creating echo chambers. This is, and I would say this is the pressure to create echo chambers where people read things that editors know they will already agree with and share, which is nothing to encourage that marketplace of ideas that women's media as a whole has never truly offered and that women deserve. Once again, the onus is on highly motivated individual editors, many of whom are here tonight, to circumvent their business model and produce high quality, meaningful content despite their model rather than necessarily being supported by it. And the bottom line is, if we want better women's media, we need to find sustainable business models. Leanne presented journalism's next big challenge. Find sustainable business models so that we can control the money and the story. Emma Jones closed out the first segment of the evening Emma is a journalist who covered gender issues for the discourse and is now pursuing a master's degree. Emma presented some tips for reporting on gender based on the findings of a survey she conducted when she was at discourse. So first, um, there's a lot of talk in J school, you guys probably know this, about balance and about objectivity. So as journalists, we know it's our job to be critical. And we often think of that looking like um, going out of our way to find kind of like a dissenting voice, going out of our way to find um, a critical perspective to slot into our news story um, and kind of move on. But readers really told me that writing a balanced story about a gender issue requires thinking a lot more deeply. So it means that we have to ask a lot of times um, which narratives, particularly about gender, do we fall back on again and again as journalists and do we assume to be objectively true? Um, and it also requires us to ask how can we work to expose the patriarchy that's really at play in a lot of the stories that we're telling. So for example, readers told me that the Site C Dam project that was getting a lot of coverage across BC was not just about the environment, but it was about women and it was about indigenous women. And this was a thread that had not yet really been explored a lot. Um, these are some of the women that told me this. And so for me as a reporter, it was kind of my job to really surface those intersectional stories and ask the questions that might get at that perspective. So, Another thing that readers told me again and again that they see and they're really concerned with is that media is still dominated by straight, white, cisgender men, especially at the top, which we heard a bit about today. Um, you know, and we also saw, with, they also told me that they saw that with the Me Too movement, um, readers recognize that journalism still has a lot of work to do on the inside around its culture of sexual assault and harassment. So, Readers asked me, you know, if we believe media and storytelling has a role in shaping the way we view the world, what happens when men like Matt Lauer, men like Gian Gameshi are really like shaping, are they the people asking the questions? They're the people shaping the narrative. So 
readers really said that we need equitable representation within media. We need women, we need queer and, tr queer and trans people, we need people of color, we need indigenous people at the tables. We need them to be asking the questions and we need them to be telling the stories. So it was really great for me to see that readers really wanna work to hold us accountable to that and they wanna see something different. After our speakers presented their talks, they joined Mikhail for a panel to break down some of these issues. They talked about how men factor into women's media and about different experiences in different kinds of spaces. Here's Mikhail. I wanted to start by asking just very briefly, when you all got into journalism, where did you see yourselves fitting into the media landscape? Um, and maybe, Leanne, your eyes perked up, maybe you can start us off. I feel like I'm maybe one of the oldest on the panel. <laughs> so uh, I would say when I started, I had very low expectations for what um, someone like me getting into um, mainstream media. My, my goal was always to go into um, journalism. Like I, I didn't aspire to work in, in women's media. And in fact, I had probably a pretty disparaging view of it based on some of the things I talked about, I think, um, at that time. and. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I had very uh, low ambitions for myself, and every time I, I got a new job, I, I, um, I, I just worked really hard and uh, surpri was surprised to find myself even in the, in the environment. Um, when I first got involved in journalism, I went to Queens, and I worked at the Queens Journal, and we did a lot of overnighters working, pushing out our issues, which I loved. And like little did I know, years later, I would also do a few overnighters in the Rogers Building to push out issues that I love. But when I went to Ryerson, I did an internship at Flair, and I have to say I effing hated it. It was really, really stressful. At the time, it was super high fashion. I realized I'm not a fashion person, and that's one of the first things I say to people. And at the time, it wasn't really doing a lot of interesting stories to my mind. But as Flair has evolved over the years, um, I interned at Flair, and then my very first job at Rogers was at Chatelaine, where I spent six years, and I really loved that because I liked touching on features more. And then once I came back to Flair, things changed really gradually until eventually I could really shape along with my team what I wanted Flair to be, which has definitely been the most rewarding part of my job. And in a strange way, now that we're digital only, fashion and beauty are still important, but they don't play the role that they once did when we were a print product. And I find that very liberating. It's made a huge difference in the kind of stories we're able to cover. And it's turned Flair into a place that I effing love now. <laughs> Sheila, do you want to jump in on that? I never went to J school, um, and I didn't ever picture myself in journalism. Um, I mean, I come from kind of a zine-making background and an art background, and so I used to be on an editorial collective um, for a zine formed by women of women and trans people of color called Big Boots, um, which we ran out of our homes. And um, when I got involved with Shameless, it was as an art director, but um, I mean, before I was a writer or an editor or a designer or an artist, I was an activist, and so I came up in the anti-violence movement um, at the Toronto Rape Crisis Center, Multicultural Women Against Rape, and um, I kind of see uh, like this work as an extension of that work. Um, and so my primary interest in any sort of uh, media or dissemination is around like how do we create sort of social change through those 
mechanisms. Um, and you know, I think I think I'm really lucky to get to work with Shameless because you know, Shameless is a media project, but it's also an activist project. It's a community organizing project. Um, you know, in addition to a publication um, which exists solely to you know reflect a, a, a diverse um, diverse youth and neglected diversity of youth, um, we also you know run a youth advisory board where we meet every week with a, or every other week with a group of youth. We run community action projects um, and kind of build capacity in different ways. And we also see our relationship with our um, writers as sort of like a feminist and activist process. So how do we kind of bridge the gap between people who are allowed to call themselves writers and people who aren't? How do we honor lived experience and how do we build um, capacity building and um, like political sort of support through these through these sort of like journalist, journalism and editorial sort of mechanisms. Um, and one of the questions we always ask when we interview people for Shameless um, to join our staff is like how do you see editorial processes as a feminist process? Or how do you see it as an activist process? And so for us, it is it is a media project, but it just happens to be a media project. Um, it's a community building project. So I, I want to pick up on that thread a little bit. Um, something that came up a lot tonight was um, the issue of addressing uh, intersecting identities in women's media. Um, how do you think more mainstream women, women's media outlets can better include these identities? It's something obviously that's super important to us at Flair. We've worked incredibly hard in the past two years to include as many writers with as many different voices as possible, um, starting from building our team and rebuilding our team after we went digital only, and also just spending tons of time reaching out to people with different perspectives on social media, people we've met at different events, and working with those people, some of who may not be experienced writers, and it can be time consuming, but it has really paid off for us, and I'm really proud in the work that we have done, and I feel like we have super increased the diversity of perspective that appears on Flare.com because of that work that we've put in. Yeah, Sheila. Sorry, I can add to that a little bit. Um, I think for us, I mean, again, we, we have like a very sort of specific mandate. Um, like a part of it is doing outreach and kind of thinking about inclusion, but also thinking about inclusion in radical ways. And so how do we, um, like how do we use our processes to redistribute and reimagine our power structures? Um, and I think there's like one one thing kind of said for inclusion. There's another thing said for recentering. Um, and so you know, for us, it kind of comes out in this relational work. Um, and and I think I think you spoke to that a little bit in terms of like what it means to like other mother, um, and what it means to kind of hold space for people, but also like understanding that like inclusion, um, like inclusion when it's done with sort of sameness isn't isn't always effective you know we have to also like support like if we're going to work with marginalized writers we also have to understand that their lives are going to be categorically more challenging than you know writers that um that face that 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 kind of get to live and carry a lot of privilege, right? So that might mean that we we work with them in different ways, that we're a little bit more flexible in how we work with them, and that we're always sort of centering um, where they're coming from and kind of aligning our visions like, at very early stages so that we're working in really collaborative ways so they can feel empowered by the process and then they can move on to publications that pay more than we do. Um, you know, so, so for us, we're kind of like, how is this an entry point into these other kinds of work through sort of this capacity building and a, yeah, a reimagining of power. So in one sentence, uh, what is your hope for women's media and media for women going forward? Um, and Emma, maybe we can start with you. 
I hope I I think I hope that um, women's media is is really um, starting to listen to what women are saying and and what different folks are saying they want um, to be reflected in media. I think there's been a lot of um, people saying like respect my pronouns and media has been really slow to come around to that. So I I hope that media is just kind of women's media is ready to make some really big pivots and reflect what we've been hearing for a really long time. Next, Leanne George. I hope that um, that uh, people are able to continue to tell stories that are not necessarily being told or being adequately told, and finding ways to do that that are sustainable. That are sustainable, where people can actually, um, you know, make a decent salary, where writers are being paid a decent amount, and um, where we value that content enough, ideally, to pay for it. Eternity Martis. My hope for women's media is that it continues to be snarky and it continues to bite back and um, we continue to talk about periods and sexual assault and all the things that for so long we felt very ashamed to talk about, uh, but also that um, you know there's not one way to be a woman, there's no right way of being a woman. Maureen Halushek. And I do want women's media to sort of push politics off the page to encourage more women to get involved politically. But ultimately, I really, truly just want women's media to survive. I think that we are at such a crucial point right now that every so many major media companies are struggling. And I think we just need to keep evolving, changing, pushing, working hard, being inclusive and being inclusive of all of all women's media brands. Like there is room in Canada for so many different women's media brands. And I really, from the bottom of my heart, just want that to continue. Sheila Sampath. My hope for women's media is that it advances equity and justice um, in all in all of its forms. Um, that we use gender um, maybe as a starting point, but not an ending point to those kinds of conversations. Um, and that we do that through what we publish and also like the cultures of care that we create uh, while we publish. And Carly Fortune. I would echo what Maureen said for sure. Um, this has been quite a punishing year in uh, women's media in Canada and uh, I'm very lucky to have a job <laughs> and uh, to be part of uh, a new launch in Canada that doesn't happen very often um, and it's 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 such a punishing heartbreaking wonderful industry and I um, a really big part of my job I think which I you know, wouldn't have thought would be when I started journalism is trying to figure figure out how to build a business um, within within Canada and how to um, kind of support the work that that we do. And um, you know, I don't I don't know what the answer is, but it is such a hu it's such a huge part of part of my job, and I wouldn't have expected that. And so um, I hope I, r I really hope that w what we're doing at Refinery Twenty Nine we can build something and grow something. We're we're small and mighty, but um, Hopefully we can we can keep going. And now it's time for our favorite segment, pull quotes. Mikhail, what have you got? My pull quote comes from the New York Times article from Tuesday, November 20th, Glamour Magazine to Cease Regular Print Publication by Jacqueline Pizer. Ironically, on the day of our conference, where a few editors talked about the impact of moving women's media from print to digital, Glamour, which has been a hugely important women's magazine from Condé Nast for more than 80 years, announced it was moving exclusively online. So here's my pull quote. 
Pamela Drucker-Mann, Condé Nast's chief marketing officer, said Glamour's disappearance from newsstands should not be viewed as a failure. Quote, This isn't like another magazine that's not going to make it, Ms. Drucker-Mann said. This is about the evolution of a brand and what it means not just to redefine itself and grow, but also to liberate itself and have this ability to not only continue on, but to be more successful than it ever was. So uh, this quote really reminds me of um, the scene in 13 Going on 30, where um, Jenna Rink, who's played by Jennifer Garner, has to redesign the magazine. And um, there's this whole tension of like, redesign is like, you may as well kill it. And and she takes it as this like really positive thing and makes it into a very sweet new magazine where you're talking about your best friend's mom and the lady you see at the grocery store. And it's very cute. But um, this kind of overarching doom and gloom of the magazine industry and oh my god what's happening uh so pamela drucker man's comment kind of read like that to me it's like oh we can take this overwhelming lack of revenue and turn it into something good which is wonderful and optimistic but also you know after everything that was brought up in the uh, panel this week um i can't help but think about how it seems like the industry just keeps trading print dollars for digital dimes as uh, leanne george said And um, honestly, I wonder what that will mean for freelancers, uh, especially because that's kind of the position that we're coming into. So I hope that Glamour's online imprint is super successful and does exciting things, but I'm kind of sad about it too. So Lydia, what's your pull quote? Well, I don't know if you've heard, but the federal government has proposed a new tax bailout for the Canadian media sector. However, there are many questions around how they plan to distribute the $595 million over the next few years. An independent panel of journalists will decide which media outlets will be eligible for the new funding. Unfortunately, that seems to be the only detail of how news organizations will get the funding. The news bill is supposed to help new companies adapt to new media consumption habits and the lack of ad revenue. However, there's concern over the vague process of the whole thing. Wayne McFall wrote about it in Rabble this week. McFall said big news companies like PostMedia and Torstar, for example, are quick to throw big bucks at social media and digital campaigns rather than critical journalism, especially for local news industries. Here's a quote from McFall that really stuck out to me. In the past 10 years, about 16,000 Canadian journalists lost their job. More than 2,000 daily journalists and 220 weekly newspapers have merged or been shuttered, and really, PostMedia papers are all in iron lungs, with American bankers kicking out the plug. Any of the funds Post Media got would mostly be siphoned off to service debt, not local communities. Big concern here is how local news companies will benefit from this new funding. And frankly, I and many other journalists don't really see where local news companies can be saved through this new tax bailout. Thank you, Lydia. And that's our show. Pull Quotes is produced by Michael Stein and by me, Lydia Aberhoff. A huge thank you again to all the incredible women who spoke at RRJ and published this week. Carly Fortune, Sheila Sampath, Maureen Halushek, Eternity Martis, Leanne George, and Emma Jones. It was really something special to have all of these voices together on one stage. Thanks to Angela Glover and Lizzie Hanna for technical help. Our executive producer is Sonia Fata. We want to give a special shout out today to Catherine Singh, the online managing editor for the ROJ, and Pramila Dessa, the ROJ conference editor. 
for heading up ROJ Unpublished. We would love to hear your thoughts about the future of women's media. You can tweet us at Ryerson Review and use the hashtag RRJ Unpublished. If you learned something today, please help us spread the word by sharing our show on social media and leaving us a rating in iTunes. You can find me on Twitter at Liddy Operha and me at Michal Stein too. You can also visit rrj.ca for new stories every week. We'll see you next week on Pull Quotes.